Greetings in the worthy name of Jesus Christ. Who there was a time, there was a time when he, there was that right time when the fullness of time was come that he came into the world. There is a time for everything and there was a time there too. I, uh, found that very interesting. Um, I put all those different times for things, and um, I suppose you could make a negative clock too, right? <laughs> I recently read an article from a pacifist perspective, I believe, that said that uh, a time for war is in there, so that was a justification used for war. Of course, in that context, it was. Then there's a time to dance. I thought of that a little bit. I did actually, um, now I didn't actually see it, but I heard of it, of a, of a, a young man dancing. He did it on purpose. They had gone somewhere to witness and they were, they were treated pretty badly. And they went home and they talked about it and they said the Bible says that when people persecute you should jump for joy. So it said they jumped for joy. <laughs> I guess you could call that dancing. But, um, yeah, it's a very interesting thought provoking message. So thank you very much. Okay, as we move ahead this morning, this this morning's message will be the exact opposite of what I uh, would have had the last time. The last time we had uh, spoke on not following cunningly devised fables or uh, myths. Peter said, I didn't follow that. I gave you the truth. And this morning, as we go on, it takes a major turn, and the title is The False false Teachers Among You, which I suppose you could say there are many who do follow myths and so on. So we'll look at that this morning. You can turn to Peter. We will not read it immediately, but you can get ready. Turn to Peter there, and Second Peter, that is, chapter 2, and we'll be in that area. So, like I said, last message I had spoke about how Peter said they didn't follow, follow cunningly devised fables, and the reason he Needed, seemed like he needed to say that is because lots of people make all kinds of claims. All kinds of fantastic or fabulous or, um, well, there's all kinds of belief systems. There's all kinds of utopia. There's all kinds of what they call snake oil. You know, this, you, you put, you use this, I don't know if there's snake oil. I guess it's just a euthanism for, uh, uh, a, Claims that are made that obviously are just quackery. But there's all kinds of them and they're claimed to be true. And it's various reasons why people want you to believe their story. Some want economic gain. That's a common one. Some want power or control over people because of what it does to them. There are some who actually have a vision and they need the masses to support them in this vision. So they come with these claims to get support. Some sincerely believe their ideals will be a benefit to society or be a a truthful to God. And they claim that their spin is true. But uh, Peter, this is a little bit of review, Peter just took that standard of truth a a major step higher. 
And uh, he said, For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's not about money. It's not about power or control or vision. It is the actual truth. And then the skeptic says, yes, yes, yes. We've heard that claim made many times. This is the actual truth. Well, then Peter clinches his claim with two major evidences. One is personal experience. He was an eyewitness. He really saw the Lord's majesty. And he saw two other people who had been dead a long time and they were talking. And he saw that. And it was such an experience that he called the place the Holy Mount. Do you have a holy mount? Do you have a place where you had an experience that that place is still holy today? I guess I could say I have one of those. The one place that I had that was a holy place, the next year was a tobacco field. <laughs> and today it's the sharp shopper store. It's a holy place. Well, in one sense it is. But nothing what Peter experienced. Peter's claim was one of authentic, supernatural experience. But many people claim to have subjective, supernatural experiences. In fact, most of the religions, or most of the sects or cults or whatever you want to call them, claim supernatural experience. So, Peter brings not a subjective experience. He brings now an objective claim outside of himself, something that is outside of his control, and that is to fulfill prophecy. Holy men, centuries ago, prophesied, and they happened right in front of Peter. But they spoke about and wrote about a coming Messiah. They didn't even understand what they were predicting. And I'm just going to read a verse here. Of which salvation, it's in First Peter chapter 1. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the great that should come unto you. Searching what or what manner of time the spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when they testified beforehand. Of the sufferings of Christ. And the glory should, that should follow. And the, key, the key claim is they testified beforehand. Peter's claim is. What was prophesied long ago. And was written down. And anybody can get up and look at those writings. What was prophesied back then. Has come to pass in the birth. And the life. And the, res- and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Hundreds of descriptions and prophecies. Some years ago, maybe this is an idea for you who want to have a children's lesson. I had a lesson to describe to the children about fulfilled prophecy to, in a children's lesson. I got a prophet up front here, which happened to be my daughter. <laughs> Your sons and daughters shall prophesy that right? Okay. <laughs> And she said some things that this is going to happen. I think if I remember right, I said the lights are going to go out and there's going to be music going to start playing, a song singing. And right after she said it, the lights went out and music started playing. But the point is God knows the end from the beginning. He has it planned so he can tell it beforehand and then he can make it come to pass. Only God can do that. And Peter was right in the middle of God's plan. And he said, I did not follow a cunningly devised fable. Uh, I am in the middle of what God is doing. And it's true. And it's real. And he could say that with full, full confidence. 
this is truth. It is beyond reasonable doubt as the way that the uh, Cam Bail Board says, one of them says, beyond reasonable doubt. Uh, something about Jesus, not sure. It's impossible for all these things to be coincidence. And I would say, point well made, Peter. Well, then the focus of this letter changes in chapter 2. Now, we want to remember, I want to bring out here, that there were no chapter divisions in the Bible until the 13th century. That someone divided the, 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 the Bible up in chapters, and then in the 16th century, sometime in the 1500s, another man divided it up in verses. And those chapters and verses are added for convenience. I mean, where could you find in the middle of Isaiah, Ho, everyone that thirsteth, come you to the waters. And we can say, well, that's Matthew, I mean, Isaiah, what is it, 58? 55, okay. Isaiah 55. And you can go in your Bible and you can Isaiah and you go to 55 and you can find it. It's made for convenience and it's, it's, it's good. But we have to remember that they are man-made. And so as we read the Bible, it's good to remember that the verses and chapters were put in, but as it was written, and as God intended it, it's just a flowing letter. It's a flowing words. One tendency of chapter and verse divisions is that can give the impression that the scripture should be read and studied in bits and pieces. It can give that impression. Here we have this verse. This verse says this. Yeah, okay, but there weren't any verses in the original. <laughs> so what does the Bible say? And we need to remember that. The entire context must be considered. So consequently, the chapter and verse division should be ignored when one attempts to understand the entire message of Scripture. So the last verse is what we call chapter 1. And the first verse of chapter 2 is simply a continuation of Peter's letter, and I'm going to read it that way now, those two verses. For the prophecy came not in old times by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. But there were false prophets also among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you, who privily shall bring in damnable, damnable heresies even denying the Lord that bought them and bring upon themselves swift destruction. Now here is an interesting observation I want to make. We live in the New Covenant era. We are not in Old Testament times. We're not under the law. We're not under Israel. We are in the age of the Spirit and the age of the church. So there are major differences between Old Testament Israel and New Testament church. But there are also some very interesting similarities. There's a continuity. Though we live in a New Testament era, evil and deception are still active in our times. We are not out of the reach of evil, just like they were in the Old Testament. Old Testament Israel experienced false prophets, and I, we heard about that in Bible school. The 401st prophet. There were 400 false prophets that came before Ahab and Jehoshaphat, I think it was. 400 false prophets. Well, Old Testament Israel experienced false prophets with devastating results. We, in our church age, face false teachers with similarly devastating results or effects. The more things change, the more they stay the same. So that's what we're going to do a little bit this morning. The false teachers among you. There were false prophets among the people, even as there shall be false teachers among you. 
false prophets. He just got done saying, prophecy came not of the old time by the will of man, but they came from God. But then he said, but there were false prophets who did not hear from God. They heard from something else. And then he said, um, just even as, and that could be read as just as, just as there were old prophets, old false prophets then, <laughs> there will be false teachers now. And where will those false pre- te- uh, teachers be? They will be among them. Is that what it says? Well, let me hear. Help me here. There shall be false teachers among them. Did I say something wrong? <laughs> among you. False teachers among you. And might there be false teachers among you? Could there be? Well, Peter says there shall be, which is an old English term of saying that there will be. There will be false teachers among you. Peter was a prophet. He was an apostle, but he he was a prophet. And he said, there will be false teachers among you. God revealed to him bits and pieces of the future. And this is one of them. There will be false teachers among you. That's a prophecy. And obviously, as Peter was writing the letter, that was actually a burden of his heart. The next word we want to observe is among. Well, what does that mean? Well, it means in your midst. That doesn't say exactly how close. I mean, I'm not going to look around here and see who the false teachers are, uh, you know, but the point I want to make is when you have, when you have a war going on and you have a line here and a line here, there is your enemy. Here are you and your people. And there is a battle. You know where they are. You know who they are. And you know what needs to be done. It's much more difficult when the enemy is among you. And I know that's a difficult part with the um, our, our nation as they face the terrorist threat. Because they are among us. There are future terrorists, we can pretty sell with certainty say there are future terrorists that are going to do terrorist acts that are going to kill people, and they're among us in our nation right now. So there will be false teachers among you, and that's a difficult thing. And there's one other thing. They are not obvious they don't come with a hat on saying i'm a false teacher or a t-shirt or horns on them they don't come that way they privily shall bring in damnable heresies that privily means secretly it's going to be by stealth they will cleverly teach those destructive heresies You know, that's like cancer. Cancer is when one of your own body's own cells mutate from being an asset or a contributor and they, and they function, uh, they change from functioning as they were intended and they, instead, they mutate. And I've understand right, they just simply, something gets switched off. And they grow uncontrollably. And instead of functioning as they should, they began to just multiply. And then they begin to destroy other tissues and cells around them. Instead of being a contributor to the body, they begin to destroy it. And they do it quite successfully. There are more than 200 different types of cancer. 
And I read this, and I suppose it's true. He said, a large percentage of people will be affected by some form of cancer or other in their lifetime. Now, some types are more serious than others. Some cancers can be treated more easily than others. And then the survival rate varies among types. Of course, you have malignant cancer, which is the kind that spreads. And then you have benign cancer. Is that the right way to say it? Which doesn't spread, but it is, it's, it's a cancer, but it's not a dangerous one. Cancer is incredibly hard to cure because the treatment must remove and or destroy the malignant cells, but not destroy the healthy cells around it. It must eliminate the parts of the body that is destructive without destroying the rest of the body. That's the difficult balancing um, problem. Another thing about cancer is incredibly hard to detect in its early stages. It starts unnoticed, very small, and it grows unnoticed and painless most times. Unless it's just real close to a nerve or something, it will just grow unnoticed. By the time it begins to create problems or symptoms, it has already been destructive and it becomes very difficult to get rid of. Most of us have lost loved ones to cancer. And to get a diagnosis of cancer is a traumatic and life-changing experience. Life takes a new meaning when you get a diagnosis of cancer, I would imagine. I have never had one. Many times, life becomes an all-out war to beat it because losing that war oftentimes means losing the life. 600,000 people a year die from cancer and $140 billion approximately is spent in a recent year. So why am I talking so much about cancer? Because a false teacher among you is like a cancer. He is called a Christian, and he is among Christians. He likely contributes to the body in a positive way at some time. Maybe. He could have been part of the body. He could have been part of the, like, like the biblical way of describing the body. He could have been part of the, the skin or the foot or the liver or whatever part. But now, instead of a contribution, he has become a scourge to the rest of the body. Still one of us, but no longer a real friend of us. Paul, who was also a prophet, described it both ways, um, both external and internal enemies. And you can turn there to uh, Acts chapter 20, where we have another description where Paul agrees with Peter. Isn't that a blessing? Paul agrees with Peter and with James. Chapter 20, and we'll read verse 29 and 30. For I know this, that after my departing, now I would like to stop here. Paul says, Paul was a prophet too, right? He was an apostle. He, now he said one thing. I know this. There's one thing you can know. I know this. Not probably. Not I think, but I know that after my departing, so grievous wolves enter in among you. And at the same word again, among you. Not sparing the flock. Also of your own selves shall men arise, speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. So they will be among you. What will they do? Well, they won't spare the flock. The healthy organs and tissues that are around them, they won't spare them. They will speak perverse things. They will bring in, like Peter says, damnable heresies. And to accept or to embrace their teaching is synonymous to accepting death by cancer. Okay. Let's turn back to uh, Second Peter 
And I'm going to read the whole chapter to get that context. I, I know I'm using it in chapters, but we'll keep on reading here. Talk about the false prophets who will be among you, bringing in damnable heresies, even denying the Lord that bought them, bringing unto themselves swift destruction. And many shall follow their pernicious ways. By reason of the way of truth shall be evil spoken of. And through covetous shall they with feigned words make merchandise of you, whose judgment now of a long time lingereth not, and their damnation slumbereth not. For if God spare not the angels that sinned, but cast them down to hell, and delivered them to, into chains of darkness to be, be reserved unto judgment, and spared not the old world, but saved Noah, the eighth person, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood upon the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemning them with an overflow, making them an example unto those that after should live ungodly, and delivered just slot, vexed with the filthy conversation of the wicked. For that righteous man dwelling among them in seeing and hearing vexed his righteous soul from day to day with their unlawful deeds. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptations and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. But chiefly them which walk after the flesh in the lust of uncleanness and despise government. Presumptuous are they, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignities. Whereas angels, which are greater in power and might, bring not railing accusations against them before the Lord. But these, as natural brute beasts, made to be taken and destroyed, speak evil of the thing that they understand not, and shall utterly perish in their own corruption, and shall receive the reward of unrighteousness, as they that counted pleasure to riot in the daytime. Spots they are, and blemishes, sporting themselves with their own deceivings while they feast with you. Having eyes full of adultery, they cannot cease from sin, beguiling unstable souls. A heart they have exercised with covetous practices, cursed children, which have forsaken the right way and are gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Besor, Bosor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. But was rebuked for his iniquity, the dumbass speaking with man's voice forbade the madness of the prophet. They are wells without water, clouds that are carried with the tempest, to whom the mist of darkness is reserved forever. For when they speak great swelling words of vanity, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through much wantonness, those that were clean escaped from them who lived in error. While they promised them liberty, they themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, the same he is brought into bondage. For if, after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, they are again entangled therein and overcome, the latter end is worse with them than the beginning. For it had been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than after they had known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered unto them. But it is happened unto them according to the true proverb, the dog is turned to his own vomit again, and the sow that was washed to her walling in the mire. Wow, what illustrious language. We're talking about dumbass, mad prophets, dog vomit, and dirty sows. Cursed children. And on and on. Peter can hardly get done describing these terrible people. This is not a middle-of-the-road diplomatic um, diplomatic compromise. I have to wonder, would we want Peter to come and preach at our church? Are you sure? Well, who's Peter referring to in his day? You know, he's referring to people in his day that were already coming, and it could have been the Gnostics, or maybe the Nicolaitans mentioned their revelation, or the teachings of Marcion, 
that uh, those teachings were rejected as heresy by the early church and others. The early church was plagued with false teachers and false beliefs. And then on you go through the Middle Ages and you have the uh, Roman Catholic Church with its gross immor- Im- immorality. And so there are many examples of this chapter in the church throughout history. But the question for us is, what is the equivalent of that today? How are we to understand and apply these words and what do we look for today? Because if we apply this scripture Peter was speaking to us, we need to understand it for our environment. So we have some clues here. And I have four points under those clues. Number one, they call themselves Christians. There's a saying that goes, not all that glitters is gold. I don't know where that saying came from, but I remember it. Just because it's glittering doesn't mean it's gold. Just because it's Christian doesn't mean it's Christian. Call Christian, sorry about that. Not all that take the name of Christ are Christians. It says here, these people deny the Lord that bought them. Yet they are among the people of God. They are known as Christian, but they deny the Lord that bought them. We could ask the question, well, were they ever real Christians? Were they once real Christians but turned away? Or were they false when the word go? It could be both, but that isn't. That isn't Peter's primary concern. Uh, there in Paul, he said there will be wolves that will be coming in, and there will be some that will be rising up amongst you. And I think both of those are true. Jesus had told Peter to feed his sheep. And so as Peter's heart is for his sheep, he does not spare any pity on false teachers. Because his main concern was the sheep. I'm going to reread a little bit there in verses 19 to 22, just in this context, because, well, let's just read it. While they, that's the false teachers, that's in verse 19 of chapter 2, verse 19. While they, the false teachers, promised them, the hearers, the sheep, liberty, They themselves are the servants of corruption, for of whom a man is overcome, the same as he brought into bondage. For if after they, and now here's the they, could be both the teachers, or could be the hearers, or it could be both. It's not real clear. It's definitely the hearers. After they had escaped the pollutions of the world, that's the hearers. The hearers are Christians. The hearers are people who had escaped. The teachers could be in there, but we're not sure. I'm not sure. But after they have escaped the pollution of the world, through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are entangled therein again and overcome. The latter end is worse with them than at the beginning. So, so we have, whether these false teachers were ever true Christians and turned away, or whether they never were, they are called Christian. That's the main point. What is sure is this, they go after God's real children. That is clear in Peter's letter. And Oftentimes, it's not always, but oftentimes it is new believers. I'm not, I'm gonna keep names out of this, but I've heard of a preacher say, and this was in another, in a South American country, they, this, their, their people would go out into the villages 
and they go out to the people and they would preach the gospel and they would win people to the Lord. And they start getting them established. And then this other group of people would go after those people that they won to the Lord and would try to persuade them to their exotic persuasion. It seems like some of this might be happening here. They've been bought by the Lord, have made a good beginning, and they re-entrap them into corruption and sin. It can be done, and it is done, and their end is worse than the beginning. They are doubly lost. No wonder Peter is so vehement about those so-called Christian teachers. Well, if it is so bad, why does anyone follow them? Is that a right question to ask? If it's so bad that they're returning to their vomit, why would someone follow them? It says here, many shall follow their pernicious ways. It's not a few, it's many. Many Christians shall follow them to their destruction. Well, that brings us to the number two. Number two, they are influential and persuasive individuals. They are not some quiet fellows content to sit over in the corner and observe what's happening. Should I say this or not? Like some of us are. (laughs) Just take that tongue in cheek, okay? (laughs) These people are not quiet fellows content. They are influential and persuasive individuals. They make things happen. Maybe they're type A personalities or they're good connectors or maybe they're compassionate, at least outwardly. One example that we have in scripture is Absalom. And I have a few excerpts from a pastor, Dave Williams, that he describes the Absalom spirit. And I'll just read a few things because it's sort of fitting here because Absalom was that kind of person. Absalom was No flaw on him. The Absalom spirit works, and this is in context to these influential and persuasive individuals who are actually false teachers. Because it's not wrong to be influential and persuasive. I want to make sure it gets clear. That's not wrong. That's right. We're talking about false teachers. The Absalom spirit has brought more hell on earth than anyone can imagine, is what Dave Williams says. This spirit is charming, deceptive, cunning, subtle, and treacherous. His spirit brings chaos and confusion to a church or any organization, all under the pretense of really caring. But that's what Absalom did. An Absalom spirit works at impressing and stealing the hearts of the people who are under authority. His goal is to eventually dethrone and replace the one in authority. Absalom maintains a carefully constructed and a meticulously projected image designed to impress. He is a master in manipulation. He assures people, you are special to me. You are my friend. And so that Absalom spirit is displayed in selfish ambition, disguised to appear as service to others. That is just one way in which these teachers exert influence over others. Their real spirit is hidden under their charming personality but they are manipulative and they have a hidden agenda. And these false teachers that Peter is talking about are influential and they're persuasive. Number three, 
they have a convincing and attractive message. Why would anyone follow them? They have a convincing and an attractive message. They know how to tickle ears. They know how to tickle the ears of God's people. They used feigned words. That word feigned means molded. It means they can mold their message till finally it, well, you know what a mold is. You put, you pour something into a mold and then it becomes that form. They will form their words until it fits the form of the people. There's something in the people that they're talking to that connects with them. And they're able to uh, mold their words until it begins to scratch where it itches. Well, well, how's that? Well, people have all sorts of problems. Anybody here have no problems? Christians have all sorts of problems. And as normal people, we as Christians look for answers for our problems. Now the Lord, he offers the ultimate answers to all of our problems. You to just take the, um, the, um, Psalms 23, Lord, uh, the shepherd's psalm. <laughs> the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leads me. He restores me. He provides for me. He keeps me. And he will make sure I will be there forever. If we take that in faith and we seek the Lord, he will answer all of our problems. We will find, we will, we will go through and we'll find what we need for our difficulties that we have in life. And we have them. But it is hard. He says clearly, you need to carry a cross. We will suffer tribulation and persecution. We are to deal with our sins and our sinful habits. We are called to submit. We are to put off the sins of our flesh. And anger, revenge, covetousness, sensuality. We're called to purity of speech. Purity in speech, purity in motives, purity in money, purity in all areas of life. That's what God calls us to. And maybe we have our struggles with them. It's a process. Maybe we have struggles in relationships that require us to humble ourselves or simply accept wrong for the sake of our brother. But at any rate, we are looking for answers. Of course, the true answer is to go to the cross, deny ourselves, and do what God tells us. That's the true answer. But here comes someone. An exuberant and a positive person. One from whom confidence just oozes out of. He has some answers to your problems. He will get you fixed up. And he comes, as the scripture says, with great swelling words, flowery words. This seems like the answer to our problems. We have an itch. And it's getting scratched by this man, this teacher. But what is hidden from undiscerning hearts is that they are words of vanity. Those words that this teacher gives are empty words. They promise liberty, these teachers do, but they themselves are not free. They themselves are slaves. Though they, they themselves, though they come under the title of Christian, are not living a victorious or a godly life. They are not following Jesus or his example or his teachings. They are taking shortcuts around the cross. Now this liberty, the liberty that false teachers promise can come in several ways. As I was meditating how to bring it a little down to us. 
One type of liberty is not to be as strictly self-denying as is clearly taught in the scripture. Uh, Ephesians 5, 1 says, Be ye therefore followers of God as dear children. And then you have the doctrinal point of, uh, of, uh, of Ephesians or Ephesians chapter 4. Walk worthy of the vocation that you're called. And, and these promise some liberty that will allow for an easier life or a, a softer approach to dealing with your flesh. With your problems. I have some examples here. Examples are remarriage after divorce. Revenge after abuse. Exhibitions of pride and vanity. And style and our personal effects. Pleasures of entertainment. In either excess or out of bounds. And we could go on and on. Different things that. That you have a softening. You have a have a compromise. You have, you have an, an easing of a true walk with God. Well, maybe we are just too harsh on these people because they mean well, don't they? Their hearts are good. Look how loving and inclusive they are. I sort of like their message. It's novel and invigorating. It looks promising. It isn't the same stuck-in-the-mud message that I'm getting tired of hearing. This message gets, this message this man is preaching gets us out of ourselves and out of our own little world and into the real world where we can be a real asset and a real help. Standing alone or nearly alone with a minority is hard. In the example, standing alone on the standard of marriage. One man for one woman for life with no exceptions. This one was slowly compromised by many Christian churches until it has become an epidemic and has wrecked much havoc in homes. Homes in Christian homes. Even while it was done under the guise of compassion and grace. But now something unforeseen has arisen that puts that compromise, puts the compromisers at a significant disadvantage in another area. Homosexual marriage. You know, a large swath of the church condemn that and they want to reject it. And one of the strongest and most biting accusations that come against the church that wants to reject that kind of marriage is, well, you don't follow the teachings of Jesus on marriage. For regular marriage, why should you condemn this? What's the difference? If this, if you can divorce and remarry against what Jesus taught, how can you then say this is wrong? In fact, this in their mind is not as clear as what Jesus taught on marriage. You are inconsistent and hypocritical. And I read those very words. I read those very words that were given in accusation. And they are. But here's the point. Past compromised, compromise done in the past, has weakened their present situation. The promised liberty that was given back then has brought them into bondage. That is one example. But compromise will always do that. The easier short-term shortcut will always come with a long-term price that someone will pay. And the interesting thing in, in I think, of the kings of Israel, sometimes the compromises that were made by one king didn't come till after they died and their children got it. And that happens, I'm sure, today also. Okay, so the one way that false teachers come is to give a shortcuts or a softening or a compromise. Another appeal 
is the appeal to the supernatural power which appeals to a carnal heart. Power, emotion, experience. Isn't that much more exciting than a path of prayer and fasting and humility? You know, the way to go up is first to go down. The way to actually get right with God is not to have an enormous emotional experience. The way to go on with God not to have an emotional experience. It's, it's many times it's to go down and deal with what your own heart is. When you go down, it's God who lifts you up. But here we have a shortcut. Here we have a shortcut. I thought I would read a little bit out of this book on the Christian Dictionary of Early Christian Beliefs, by, but compiled by David Bershow. And I went into the area about heretics and heresies, and I found some interesting, interesting ones here. I thought I'd read a few of them. And here is a description of heresy. In addition, they, the heretics, will add a great deal respecting the high authority of each teacher of heresy. They will relate how these men strengthened belief in their own doctrine through mighty works, how they raised the dead, they restored the sick, they foretold the future, so that they might deservedly be regarded as apostles. As if this warning were not already also in the written record, that many will come who were to work even the greatest miracles in defense of the deception of their corrupt preaching. <laughs> Tertullian, around 197. There were people who were doing mighty miracles, supposedly, but they were doing corrupt preaching while they were doing mighty miracles. And the early church considered them heresies. That is prevalent today in many venues. The word of faith, name it and claim it movement. If you give God money, somehow through this ministry, God will bless you. They will make merchandise of you. Or have miracle crusades. God doesn't want his children to be sick. Or the music concerts, which appeal largely to the emotions. Of course, today they have brought the music right into the church. You don't even need to go to the concerts anymore. They brought the concerts into the church along with the professional musicians. And they borrow the music from the heathen in the supposed church of God, right in the assembly of God's people. And congregational singing and participation dwindles down to sometimes nothing. So that's the second way. The first way is compromise. second way is by experience and miracles. And the third way is the opposite way. It's to be strict and exact in certain particular points, but miss the heart and meaning of God. And there are prophets in that area, teachers of that where. Now, this area is much smaller. It's like John D. Martin said about the Gnostics. The Gnostic belief, he said, there was a major sect of the Gnostic and there was a minor sect. And the major sect was, well, since the spirit is pure, but the body is not, we're going to divide the two. And so you can have a pure spirit while you have a... a um, body that's not following God. You had to make that dichotomy. That's where the masses of the Gnostics went. But then they had another small element, which which um, the body is considered evil. So they would starve and fast and do all the kinds of things that were hard on the body to try to somehow make their spirit pure. That's a minority viewpoint. And, and uh, it's done today. Not very popular. But Martin Luther... Uh, the beginning of the Reformation, he did that. He became a monk, and he he almost killed himself. I mean, some of his 
fellow monks thought he's going to kill himself because he was so hard on his body. It's this belief. It's the idea that denying the body makes oneself more holy. But though he tried to please God, he did not come in through the door that Jesus said he needs to come in. So today, many trust a strict lifestyle or separation from the world, and they deny themselves many things. The masses or the multitudes don't go after teachers like this. It's a small ditch on the other side of the road. This is not mentioned by Peter here, but it's mentioned by Paul, and I'd like to just bring that up. And you can turn to uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And we see these people described. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter time some shall depart from the faith. There we hear that same thing. There's some that are going to depart that were Christians giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Now there you have the, there you have the, um, I think of the word, the description, let's say it that way, of a false teacher. (laughs) The beginning of it. And what do you do? Speaking lies in hypocrisies, having their conscience seared with hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving, to them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good, and nothing is to be refused, if it be, re- be received with thanksgiving. For it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. I think we'll stop there. So there you have false preachers, false teachers, but they're doing the opposite. They're actually denying what the Lord has allowed. And they are false teachers as well. In fact, it's a doctrine of devils. Uh, Wow. That's amazing. I'd like to also read another excerpt from this book. Okay. Oh, dear, this one. Here, here uh, Tertullian writes, in the apostolic times, of course, that was for him, was 100 years before. <laughs> Actually, 150 years, 130 years before, when Peter was writing this book, that was apostolic times, okay? In the apostolic times, these heresies were in crude form. They are now found to be in the same heresies, only in a much polished version. <laughs> The false teachers are getting better. They're getting more deceptive. They're, they're polishing it, making it look better. There's actually one other one that I wanted to read. If I didn't write it down. Actually, this is actually should have been with the first point about compromise. I should have read it then. But here, here, here is a heresy also by Tertullian. And he says, a better God has been discovered by the heretics. One who never takes offense, is never angry, never inflicts punishments, has prepared no, prepared no fire in Gehenna, and requires no gnashing of teeth in the outer darkness. He is purely and simply good. He indeed forbids all delinquency, but only in word. He is in you, and if you are willing to... He is in you if you are willing to pay him homage. This is for the sake of appearance, so that you may seem to honor God, for he does not want your fear. And we wonder, if you caught the the meaning of that, there's nothing new under the sun, for sure, is there not? And there'll be a few more I could read, but I think I'll stop. That is, uh, the, the third point was that they will have a message that is invigorating and persuasive, however I worded that. Number four, they and all their followers have a predicted end. 
and that is in Second Peter 2.9. The Lord knoweth how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust unto the day of judgment to be punished. The Lord knoweth. This is not an empty threat. This reality has a track record. The angels, the people in Noah's day, the cities in the plains in Abraham's day, false prophets and false teachers and those who listen to them and follow them will face judgment. God runs a moral universe. Angels not exempt. When we're talking about a moral universe, what God says is right is right. What God says is wrong is wrong. And that's the kind of universe God runs. Even angels are not exempt from judgment and punishment. Noah believed God. When God said, I'm going to judge this world and I want you to do this, Noah believed God, and he proved it by obeying God in rather extreme situation. But the main thing is that Noah did not compromise. He understood that what God says is what God means, and what God says he will do is what he is actually going to accomplish. All false teachers compromise. Noah went the difficult route and did not compromise. And the Lord delivered him from the destruction that came on all those who compromised in one form or another. Lot maintained his personal faith but made some very unwise choices. This is an example of how precise God is. He will deliver every and all godly people from judgment. No matter where they're at, he will deliver the godly. He knows how to do it. He knows how to deliver the godly out of temptations, out of judgment. But he also, with the same preciseness, knows how to reserve the ungodly for punishment and judgment. So it does not matter if anyone is called a Christian. That's not the point. It doesn't matter how inspiring and gifting and influential anyone is with a huge personality. That's not the point. To us, it looks impressive, not to God. It does not matter how pleasing or helpful or attractive their message is. What matters is, do they believe and preach and follow the truth? Have they come in by the door, the Lord Jesus Christ, trusting him for their eternal life and received him as the true king of their life? That is the question. And I think in closing, I'll just read, I'll read a very familiar passage. Some of you children might be able to maybe have memorized it. Matthew chapter 7. Not every one that saith unto me, this is verse 21, Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name, and in thy name cast out devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works? Then I will profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. Therefore, whosoever heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them, I will liken him unto a wise man, which built his house on a rock. 
And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat upon the house, and it fell not, for it was founded upon a rock. And every one that heareth these sayings of mine, and doeth them not, shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and they beat upon that house, and it fell. And great was the fall of it. The predicted end of both the ungodly and the godly. God has said it. It is going to be exactly like God said it. Can we kneel for prayer? If you're able to, let's kneel for prayer. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful, Lord. You have been so abundantly blessing us. Your revelation, your spirit, and your life has been given to us so abundantly, Lord. We want to thank you this morning for your grace and your mercy and your love to us. But also, Lord, we are sobered this morning as we recognize, and even as James says, that teachers will be held to a higher standard. And, Lord, that is all of us in some capacity, Lord. Lord, I ask you, Lord, that you would definitely guide and lead us, Lord. We do not always know exactly what is true and what is not. We are sometimes taken in by our own emotions. Sometimes our flesh gets in the way. Sometimes, Lord, we would rather not go a certain way and we look for options. Lord, those are real in our lives. They're very real. Lord, we want to serve you. You alone are worthy. You alone are king. You are the, uh, you have a, the eternal kingdom prepared and waiting for your people. And Lord, not only for our sake, but for those around us and for the community and for the world, they need to see a city that is set on a hill. They need to see the truth. They need to see something in the midst of compromise and wickedness. They need to see your truth lived out and taught in reality, by your people. And Lord, we want to be that people. We really want to be that people. We ask you, Lord, guide us and direct us in that way. Thank you, Lord, for your mercy. Lord, um, you have not said the way will be easy, and it isn't. But Lord, you said you will be faithful, and we can trust in that. So we thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you.